Hello and welcome to the very first and unique edition of our podcast about fraud in sport. This is a podcast that is made by academic researchers, which is us, for academic researchers, but also we hope for anyone interested in learning about the current scientific and academic research that is conducted within the Faculty of Law and Criminology at Ghent University. The aim of this podcast is to give you a look into the research that we conduct as PhD researchers on the very hot topic of fraud in sport. But first, we will introduce ourselves. My name is Lucie Van Wersch, and I have been working as a PhD researcher at Ghent University for a year now. I have a background in psychology and in criminology and forensics, which I got at the University of Maastricht in the south of the Netherlands. And I am Louis van der Kruijse. I'm a PhD researcher at Ghent University as well, uh, since November of last year, 2020. And I have a background in law and obtained my master's degree at Ghent University as well. Now, together with three other PhD researchers, two postdoctoral researchers and a very diverse team of professors, we work on the project financed by the Flemish Fund for Scientific Research called PROFS. The acronym stands for Prevention of Fraud in Sports. And the project is really characterized by the fact that its goal is centered about providing socially relevant and practical tools to organizations and individuals from the working field that are involved in sports and in sport organizations. The goal of the tools is to assist the working field in the prevention of fraud within their sector. And we address the issue from a very multidisciplinary standpoint. So we have researchers departing from psychology, criminology, law, sport management, and engineering and economics. But enough about the Profs project for now. Uh, we also want to introduce our guest, uh, who we interviewed in Brussels on the 17th of November 2021. And her name is Christine Castells. Um, Mrs. Castells is an advisor to the Belgian Federal Police within the Belgian Sports Fraud Team. And she has worked with the group of Copenhagen, on which we will also give more information later in this podcast. But with this group of Copenhagen, she has worked, amongst other things, on comprehensive typology of sport manipulation that was published in 2020. She's also an active member of the Belgian National Platform Against Competition Manipulation. And yeah, this Belgian platform, we will also talk about it. Uh, we find it very interesting because it has been deemed as an example within the European Union, amongst the other European platforms. We have asked Mrs. Castells a number of questions about certain topics that we find very interesting or that are currently relevant uh, in the media or at the moment. And one of these topics is the Belgian large-scale football scandal named Operation Clean Hands. But also uh, we asked her to talk a little bit about the Belgian national platform and its working and the cooperation between public authorities and sport federations in the fight against fraud in sport. Lastly, at the end of the podcast, we will address our future research ideas and how and why we think that academic research should be valorized more. So, Louis, let's start with the current elephant in the Belgian football's dressing room, Operation Clean Hands, as I have mentioned uh, before. To give our listeners some, some background into this scandal, it exploded in October 2018 in the media in Belgium, uh, right after Belgium's participation in the FIFA World Cup. Uh, back then, a large number of house searches were conducted by the federal police concerning allegations of financial fraud and match-fixing in Belgium's biggest and most popular football clubs. 
Louis, you are the legal expert in the room. Can you tell us a little bit about the current state of the criminal and the disciplinary procedures that were initiated back then in 2018? At the moment of recording, the criminal procedure is still pending, so we can't give a lot of information on that yet. What's interesting in this case, however, is that one of the targeted football agents, uh, which are also called intermediaries, has decided to provide the information he has on the case to the authorities in return for a reduction of his sentence. And this is the first time in Belgian history that a suspect is granted this kind of whistleblower status. Of course, aside from the criminal procedure and in the aftermath of the scandal, the Belgian Football Federation took disciplinary action and sanctioned the club and several of the persons who were involved in the case, which were mainly directors and intermediaries. The Belgian Court of Arbitration for Sports then partially reformed that decision in that way that the involved club could not be relegated due to the fact that the claim of the Belgian Football Association's prosecutor's office was initiated too late. But it did not end there, because some of the disciplinary sanctioned persons, among which a number of uh, intermediaries, were not satisfied with the outcome of the case, and they took the case to the Belgian Tribunal of First Instance, which declared that the Belgian Football Association did not take into account a number of or their rights of defense, which resulted in an annulment of the decision of the Court of Arbitration for a number of the involved parties. So that's in short uh, where we are at the moment. Okay, thank you for this update. In, in academia and in university, we, we also didn't stand still during this whole case and uh, we conducted academic research on the topic. Namely, we have distributed a questionnaire with the help of the Belgian newspaper Hut Newsblad. And in this questionnaire, we asked fans which football actor they trusted more between the players, the coaches, the referees, the agents and the club managers. The results showed that agents and referees were still, in 2020, two years after the scandal, the least trusted football actors next to club managers. Um, this seems also quite a logical result, as the agents and the referees were also at the center of this uh, large-scale Belgian scandal. We asked Mrs. Castils why she thinks that Belgium, of all countries, was the host of this huge scandal involving match-fixing and financial fraud. And this was her answer. Corruption in sports and then particularly in football is not typically for Belgium. It occurs everywhere. Um, but as one uh, prosecutor years ago told in a, in a different context, if you don't look for something, you won't find it. Why did it blow up in Belgium? <laughs> we can say it like that. Um, I think it has a lot to do with our investigators um, because they know what they are looking for. That's the first thing. You have to know what you, what you are looking for. And we have uh, the backing of our uh, federal prosecutor. Um, and those are the two things that you need um, to conduct uh, successful uh, investigations. It's not an easy world to investigate. In fact, it seems that the world of match-fixing, as Mrs. Castells uh, rightly points out, is not an easy world to investigate. Some forms of match-fixing are especially difficult to tackle because they're not always perceived as against the rules or even regarded negatively from a moral perspective. For example, this is the case of sport-related match-fixing that was suspected in Operation Clean Hands. And that is match-fixing that is mostly related to sportive or competitive incentives instead of betting financial incentives. So uh, in uh, recent empirical research, we have studied the decision-making of athletes when they are presented with propositions of sport-related match-fixing. 
and we wondered whether situational or rather personal dispositional factors would have more impact on individuals' decision-making when they choose to accept or not a match-fixing offer. We have studied this in amateur football and tennis in Belgium, and our results show that in football, situational factors have a much less important influence on decision-making than uh, the way they, the, the, the respondents judged match-fixing morally or em emotionally, so rather dispositional factors. In tennis, however, we have found that the amount of effort that is uh, required to fix a match and the fact that the proposition was initiated by a coach rather than by an opponent, both these situational factors have an impact on whether individuals that would feel tempted to accept an offer would actually act upon this temptation. So we think that these results will be quite uh, useful and relevant uh, when we will try to prevent match fixing by working on both the situation and individuals' moral decision making. I think that now we can switch to the regulative approaches to fraud in sport. Uh, so as Lucy mentioned, the idea of creating a national platform which aims to facilitate cooperation stems from the Macaulay Convention. Now, this convention in full is called the Council of Europe Convention on the Manipulation of Sports Competition. In short, it's called the Macaulay Convention after the Swiss town of Macaulay, where it was officially opened for signature. The convention is rather important in the context of sports fraud, and this, this is because it's the first convention at an international level to deal with match fixing specifically. So in the context of sports, we've already had conventions on doping, for example, the UNESCO Convention Against Doping in Sport or uh, several Council of Europe conventions. Uh, we also have conventions on spectator violence, which all were established uh, during the 80s. But the Macaulay Convention is relatively new, so it's only been opened for signature in 2014 and it entered into force in 2019, but only for a limited number of countries, I think seven at the moment, and Belgium is not one of them. International cooperation with regard to match fixing is, however, extremely important and match fixing has existed since quite a long time. So it's quite surprising that it took so long to establish a international convention uh, around the topic of match fixing, but at least we have one now. And to be fair, the Macaulay Convention really was an impetus for more cooperation between public and private actors and the so-called national platform, which will be further discussed during this podcast, is an idea created by it. So since 2014, even though, as I mentioned, only for seven member states, the Macaulay Convention has entered into force, uh, we've seen that a lot of countries, over 30 countries, actually have established a national platform, including Belgium. Due to the convention, match fixing really has been put more and more on the agenda of both federations and governments, while before the focus may have been more on doping, uh, which of course is also an issue that needs to be addressed related to sports fraud. The Macaulay Convention improves cooperation both internationally and nationally, between stakeholders at all levels, so public and private stakeholders. With that short introduction about the origin of the convention, we can maybe listen to what Christine Castells had to say about our Belgian national platform against match fixing. So our national platform is unique in the way that it, uh, it has all the stakeholders involved in um, the issue. Um, so we have our ministries, and in Belgium, uh, 
there are three <laughs> that uh, deal with sports. Um, we have our Ministry of Justice, um, the federal police, we have uh, our federal prosecutor who plays a very active role and we're lucky to have him because he puts it as a priority so that helps in our investigations. But we also have our sports federations and we went very large in that. So um, we have uh, the most obvious ones for Belgium, that is tennis, football, basketball, cycling, um, hockey. Uh, but we also have the National Lottery, we have the Gaming Commission. Um, we also have uh, the Athletes uh, Union uh, represented. Um, so we, we have a, a very broad spectrum to work in. And the thing that makes it work, I think, uh, personally, is that we manage to build trust among all the stakeholders. I think you cannot function if you don't have trust. So what is important is that Mrs. Castells talks about trusts on various occasions. So without trust, public and private stakeholders could not come together in the fight against match fixing. Though, as mentioned a little bit earlier as well, cooperation is really imperative to adequately tackle the issue at hand. This is because there's limited jurisdiction that sports federations have. So when you're an athlete, a coach, a referee within a specific sport, you'll basically sign into the regulations of that sports federation. So you're bound by the regulations. And this entails that you can also be sanctioned by the sports federations when you commit match fixing, because match fixing is usually considered to be a regulatory offense within the sports federation. So the federation will have the power to take disciplinary action against you as an athlete, a coach or a referee. They can give you a ban, they can deduct points, disqualify the athlete or team and so on. However, match fixing is often more complex than that. There's betting related match fixing on the one hand and there's non-betting related match fixing. So. For the latter, non-betting related match fixing, a game is fixed because it could lead to a sporting advantage, such as promotion to a higher division, qualifying for the next round of a competition, avoiding regulation, etc. For the former, now the betting related variant, the reason for the fixing can primarily be found in monetary gain through betting practices. Now, I think most people know that at least in Belgium, you can bet on sports games, for example. What's typical about betting is that the outcome and thus whether or not you'll win money with your bet is uncertain. However, if you're able to fix a match, you really get rid of that uncertainty and you're almost sure that your bet will lead to monetary gains. And what we see with betting related match fixing is that often these will be criminal groups that are trying to convince sports people, so coaches, referees, players, athletes themselves, they will try to convince those uh, persons within sports to fix a match for them. And then, of course, the criminal group is able to bet on that specific game. They know that they will win a lot of money because the match is fixed and the coaches, referees and athletes will get a certain or small percentage of that. But then there's the jurisdictional issue in a lot of these cases, because as I said, only the athlete coach or referee, so people who are bound by the regulations, can be sanctioned by the sports federation itself. But the criminal group that may have orchestrated the whole thing is not bound by the regulations of the sports federation. So the criminal group cannot be disciplinary sanctioned by a sports federation. And that's why you need public actors such as police, prosecutors who do have jurisdictions to investigate the criminal groups behind the fix and thus criminally prosecute them. Uh, but this requires cooperation, otherwise some fixers might escape criminal liability or liability at all, whether that's criminal or regulatory, as I said. 
For cooperation to be efficient, you really need trust. And that's why many believe that such a national platform is useful because these people are put in the same room. They discuss uh, things with one another. They discuss match fixing uh, with one another. And I think that really it leads to better cooperation uh, in the end, at least better than what it was uh, before. And we ask also Mrs. Castells, who has an important role within the platform, to describe to us which type of activities they are conducting against fraud in sport, different types of fraud in sport. And she mentioned some type of monitoring systems. So we can listen to what she has to say about this. We've set up a monitoring system. Um, so we've already done boxing, um, tennis and football. Um, that works with the federations um, and, and, and that turns out uh, to be very successful. So if um, sports um, organizes an international event, uh, could be national, but we're limited to international because we are limited in, in capacity. Um, when it's taking place in Belgium, then we meet with the sports federation um, We see if there is uh, reason enough to set up a monitoring. If there is, then um, we put in place a whole system. Um, so uh, it's the Belgian Federal Police, it's a sports fraud team that takes the lead. We consult with our uh, federal prosecutor, with the sports federation that is involved. So if it's boxing, it will be the... It's 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 actually the ministry, because it depends on the ministry, um, for licenses and things. Then we go to the local uh, police um, to make them aware of the event that is going to take place. Um, not so for boxing, but for tennis, for instance, to, to be aware of courtsiders. Uh, we explain to the local police uh, what courtsiders are and how they have to, to react when they spot someone. Um, we go to the local judicial police to the local prosecutor and uh, then we have a big meeting uh, a big uh, uh, briefing before the event then we are on the spot during the event and then we have a debriefing um, and that seems to work uh, okay i forgot that we also have the gaming commission on board obviously and we um, also work with the group of copenhagen who has a, a specific um, group that works on uh, alerts uh, and they monitor all the betting um, on European level. And then we also interact with the Interpol Match Fixing Task Force to see if there are betting movements on the event um, around the globe. Regarding these monitoring systems, what I think is also interesting to reflect on is that they are only putting them up on international sport tournaments within Belgium. It might be also interesting to, to look at national tournaments uh, next to this. I know that, for example, uh, in the academic literature, a lot has been said about the, the fact that criminal organized crime groups also and also international bettors have been focusing on low-level national competitions to bet on just because they know that detection systems are not used on them or less used. And so we see that detection of fraud is an important issue in different sport contexts, but we were also interested in the investigation and prosecution of different types of fraud in sports. And we have also talked about this with Christine Castells during her interview. But maybe first, Louis, you could 
tell us a bit more about what you are doing uh, now surrounding the Belgian criminal system and how it deals with uh, match fixing. Yeah, so we actually do research on the applicability of Belgian criminal law on cases of match fixing. Uh, and indeed, we, we've asked Mrs. Castells because she really probably has some knowledge about that as well, about her take on criminal law and whether or not she sees the need for amendments uh, within our Belgian criminal law framework. So let's hear what Mrs. Castells has to say about this. If in, like in France, we would have a specific uh, chapter on uh, everything that has to do with sports corruption, that would be easier for us. This said, um, it's not always easy to have new legislation. Um, also, the corruption in sports, the manipulations of sports competitions, um, there are not the only things um, that have to be tackled. We have, as I said, um, human trafficking issues, but we also have money laundering. Um, we have good governance, um, the procurement uh, for new stadiums, for instance. Um, those are all um, crimes that can be prosecuted on different bases. Um, there is not one match-fixing uh, legislation, but I think that it would be very hard to have one law defining what match-fixing is, because uh, I think there are already uh, four or five projects who have tried to, to define what match-fixing exactly is, and it's so broad and it's so diverse that it's very complicated to just have one law. So I think if we can work around all the existing laws that already are in place that we can um, successfully prosecute. So it seems that at the moment in Belgium, we have to work with what already exists. From a legal point of view, when encountering match fixing, there are two tracks. The first one is the action of the sports federations. So these sports federations have their regulatory framework and have the competence to take disciplinary action against persons bound by those regulations, for example, athletes and coaches. The second track is the criminal law track, as match-fixing may also constitute an infringement of countries' criminal law. In Belgium, according to available literature and past cases, our standard criminal law provision to prosecute cases of match-fixing is private bribery, so this can be found in Article 504 bis and there of the Belgian Criminal Code. But match-fixing is however quite complex and it can also, taking into account the specific of each case constitute breaches of other Belgian criminal provisions such as money laundering, scamming and so on. As far as private bribery goes, there might be a possible issue. So when we look at the constituent elements of that article and you apply it on various possible cases of match fixing, it's not really certain that things would always hold up in court. This is because private bribery was created as a measure which mainly protects companies from their employees who might take a bribe and do something which might be against the interest of the companies they're working for. But that specific professional status towards a legal person or even a natural person does not necessarily always exist in sport. Yet it is a requirement when we look at the wording of private bribery. So imagine an individual athlete, a tennis player, he or she will not always have that clear professional status towards a company, which could mean that private bribery cannot be applied on him or her if he or she engages in match fixing. Of course, there are maybe some ways out if you're creative, but the question is, should it be that difficult? Another issue regarding private bribery might be the constituent element that the bribe must take place without the knowledge and without the authorization of the board of directors, the general meeting, the principal or the employer. 
In past cases of match fixing, we've seen or observed that the fixing took place with the knowledge of directors, so that might cause application issues as well. And I can agree with Mrs. Castells that the alternative, that this being the creation of a specific criminal law provision, for example, for match fixing is difficult as well. Match fixing is really complex and we cannot criminalize all types of behavior. For example, what do we do with tactical underperformance? Yeah, because the interesting thing with tactical underperformance, I think, is that it's not even against the spirit of the sport because you're actually trying to get further in the competition, right, when you use it. So it gets really complex to, to, to criminalize it or make it against the rules. And I think that not even all federations agree on whether tactical underperformance should be against the regulations. I, I, we know, f for example, of the International Badminton Federation and Football Federations that disagree on, on this topic. So it wouldn't make a lot of sense to criminalize it at this point, right? No, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to criminalize it because, as you said, indeed, uh, Badminton Federation has taken action against tactical underperformance and the football federations have consistently not taken action against the phenomenon. So it's, uh, it's difficult indeed. All right, so as a last topic, and we decided to include it uh, just out of interest and also because it has a relation to Louis' f future research uh, during his PhD, we wanted to talk a little bit about the football transfer system, but also its dangers and some of the negative sides of this transfer system in football. So, Louis, you will study this transfer market system in football in uh, the next months or years of your PhD. Why do you think it's such an important area to look at within our project of the prevention of fraud in sport? Uh, at the moment, the research on football transfers or my research in, uh, on the legal and regulatory aspects of football transfers ha has not started. But yeah, when we look at the case of Operation Zero, uh, we can see that there might be a need for further research on the topic. So a whole range of professional football teams and intermediaries or sports agents uh, were allegedly involved in large-scale financial fraud having to do with transfers or contracts of players or coaches, contracts and so on. So I think it will be interesting to see how rules and regulations currently in place may, I mean, being the cause of the, of the financial fraud, maybe not, but like how they may be improved. So that's what I'm trying to do. Or that, that's at least what I'm going to try and do in the coming years. And the past years, we've seen even Belgian government, football federations, they have taken action explicitly after uh, Operation Zero was really made public. So we've seen that the Belgian anti-money laundering legislation is now applicable on professional football clubs. Uh, as well as on the Royal Belgian Football Association, which may add to transparency of financial dreams. Uh, we've also seen updates in the Belgian Football Association's uh, intermediary regulations, disciplinary regulations since the scandal broke out several years ago. And they also uh, set up a specific, well, in order to improve transparency, they also use a clearing system now within the Belgian Football Association. So it is definitely an interesting topic to research. Uh, and maybe, Lucy, you can tell us a little bit more about your future research as well. Sure. Uh, we are now planning to look into the consequences of fraud in sport. Uh, after having looked at some of the mechanisms behind individuals' decisions to participate in match fixing, we want to look at the effects it can have. So the plan is to look at certain high-profile cases in less popular sports and not uh, solely on match fixing, but also on other types of fraud in sports. And we want to assess the impact of these scandals 
on different stakeholders, such as individual athletes, coaches, but also fans and maybe public organizations. And we hope to show with this research that fraud in sport has wider consequences than you might think when you hear about it in the media initially. And talking about the media, we have noticed that sports fraud has received a lot of attention. Uh, Netflix has even a documentary called Bad Sport about all types of, of match fixing and financial frauds and uh, shady businesses within sports. So the public is paying attention to, to this phenomenon, but we think that the scientific and the academic research on the topic also deserves a little bit uh, more light. And this is why we also wanted to make this podcast to share with you what academics are actually doing on this topic next to, to the media and journalists. Because the Profs project is in close collaboration with many different stakeholders, the federal police, the, the prosecutor's office, large sports federations, we think that its results will be and should be shared with a very broad public and also, we hope, with sport fans who are also indirectly affected by sport fraud. So this is why we think that this project in, in particular would really benefit from more valorization possibilities such as this podcast. We hope that we will be able to record a new podcast maybe next year, maybe in two years, telling you more about the, the research that we have done during those years and as Mrs. Castells beautifully said we cooperate nobody can fight crime alone so we are very glad that we are able to work together with many different stakeholders in our research about the prevention of fraud in sports and most importantly we would like to thank Christine Castells from the sports fraud team of the federal police for her participation in our interview we hope you enjoyed this podcast thank you very much for listening oh, oh, oh.